any solid supply chain is going to have multiple options because if your supply chain is set up where you're restricting or constricting growth, you're not doing your job. I'm Carl Siebrecht. I'm Ben Dean. And I'm Jordan Lawrence. And this is the Logistics Leadership Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Great to have you again on the Logistics Leadership Podcast. Ben and Jordan, as always, great to have you here as well. I was super excited and am still kind of charged up about the conversation we had in the last episode, which was episode four, where we talked with Jason Trusley. And Jason's center of gravity as he thinks about logistics and logistics strategy and logistics leadership is the consumer and his point, which he made in a very compelling way, is that consumer behavior is probably the biggest driver of the evolution and change in logistics. Yeah, that was a great conversation you had there, Carl. Uh, Jason just really front and center with the consumer appropriately. And what's so interesting is that in today's world, which is now almost fully digital, the ability of the consumer to immediately shape the decisions of supply chain leaders uh, is near instantaneous. And of course, that presents uh, challenges for supply chain leaders. And I, I think Jason really deeply understands that. So a very fascinating conversation. And Jordan, there is the shift to digital, but you can't deny that there's still an analog component of the customer experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like it's, it's the, you know, the supply chain is digitizing, but at the end of the day, this is the real physical world that we're operating in. So Obviously, a lot there. So what I want to do is dig deeper into this topic. And I thought there would be no better place to go than to reach out to a friend and colleague, Michael Bender, who has spent the last several decades working in big jobs at some of the leading retailers and manufacturers uh, out there from Walmart to Victoria's Secret, Cardinal Health, PepsiCo. He's also serving on multiple boards. And he has been a chief operating officer, a president, a general manager. And throughout that um, incredible career, he has always kept the consumers at the center of his decisions and his investments as he's tried to navigate their uh, changing and evolving needs. So I'm incredibly excited to dig in with Michael a little bit to keep digging deeper uh, into this topic. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation, Carl. I'm looking forward to hearing it. And uh, this week, I've got some upcoming conversations with some tier one retailers. And I know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the consumer is always front of mind for them. So hopefully when we circle back, we can bring some insights from that conversation as well. And diving deep into the pool of complexity for customer experience, we're going to be talking on my end with the chief supply chain officer, Blue Apron, Chris Halkier. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of his experience in the e-commerce world. Can't wait to speak with him. This is great. I'm really looking forward to this. And we will circle back up and compare notes. Hi, Michael. Thank you for joining me today. It is great to see you again. We are here to talk about how to think about adapting to the continuous changes in e-commerce. So I actually had to look this up uh, this morning. Both Amazon and eBay started in 1995 as a marker for kind of the, the scaling up of e-commerce, if you will. Um, we're getting close to 30 years on this, which is pretty amazing. 
so maybe a good starting place would be kind of starting in the current times and then putting that maybe in some context with history. What do you see as the biggest trends in e-commerce currently? Yeah, I think for for me, Carl, a lot of uh, e-commerce players now are past the point of trying to figure out how to integrate e-commerce into a business, particularly um, in a retail setting where you're trying to uh, balance out uh, both a brick and mortar um, capability as well as um, as well as e-commerce. Now it's really about um, the progression toward um, focusing on what is it that the customer is really asking for. Um, getting that product to them um, as quickly as possible, um, as efficiently as possible, and in a cost-effective manner um, so that they can engage with uh, a brand any way they want to. Um, and that can be from, obviously, an order order situation, sitting on a couch at home and having it come to you. It can be a buy online, pick up in store. And so the, the leverage of technology certainly is evolving quickly. And as I think about the progression of what's happened in the industry over the course of time, there was this period of time when the manufacturers had all of the power, right? Because they were making the product and had all the information and both the retailers or the intermediaries uh, didn't have any um, any of that power, nor did the consumer. That shifted to when retailers started to have more power because they had the data and they had the shelf space, if you will. And now it's uh, now all the power is really in the hands of the consumer. And so all of the focus right now from an e-commerce standpoint that I see is really focused on understanding the customer, making sure that you are um, assorting whatever it is you do in whatever space you operate in, in a way where you're able to bring those products and services to um, a customer better than the next competitor. And that's uh, that's a big piece of it. Data is a big leverage point and um, the personalization of it, like I said, is, is a big part of it as well, which presents challenges, right? Because you'd love to be able to have a system where you're doing nothing but sending one thing to everybody. Um, but that's not the way the world's working now. So. Right, right. Yeah, I love the way you frame that. So and it almost sort of maps to the to the evolution of e-commerce, or maybe it just literally does, that that one of the key dimensions is the power or control in the value chain has shifted from manufacturer ultimately to consumers with retailers sort of acquiring a bit more power and control as a result of that too, because they've got more data. Yeah, I mean, if you think about even, you know, the vivid analogy for me is buying a car. There used to be a moment where, you know, when you would go to the car dealer, you had no information other than I like that car. Mm -hmm. The dealer would say, great, I'm going to sell it to you for what I want. You can look online, you can find all the information you need about the car. And when you go in to buy it, there's really nothing to talk about because you've got it all figured out in terms of literally down to the penny what you should pay for that. So in terms of trends in e-commerce, then a big one is how to understand your consumers deeply so that you can help them interact with your business and buy in a way they want to buy. So one of the big trends is sort of understanding consumer needs at a more intimate, detailed level. The big piece, obviously, is, is how do you leverage the data to be able to get underneath and inside the head of a consumer and understanding very clearly what is it that's, um, uh, that's driving their behavior and their interest 
And then importantly, from an e-commerce standpoint, what other items are important in their in their data set, if you will, and their behavior um, so that when you're placing product, um, whether it's in a distribution center or wherever you're housing it, can you put it in a place where you're thinking smartly about what else might be in that basket and send it one time with everything that the customer probably would want to have versus a package coming from Boston, one coming from LA, one coming from Chicago, right. all going to the same address. And you know that's that's one of the things I think that a lot of e-commerce players are really trying to figure out as they try to head toward profitability in, in the cases where they're not yet. Michael, can you talk a little bit about what you have observed in how consumers' needs and behaviors have changed over the last, you know, two, five, ten yeah. years? I think from from a consumer perspective, because they have um, the power, if you will, if we want to continue on with that theme, Mm -hmm. um, through the information that's available to them, they have more choice and the switching costs are much less than they ever were for a consumer. It's very easy, regardless of what you're buying, but certainly commodity items for sure, to go to the place where whatever they're trying to solve for, whether it's price or speed or availability assortment, um, they can find just about anything they they want. And so um, in some respects, it's made it easier. In others, it's actually made it more difficult because, um, you know, you think you have a customer locked in and loyalty and, and the definition of loyalty is a lot different than, than it used to be uh, because a, a customer can move from site to site or store to store and find what they're looking for relatively easily. Got it. So what are the implications of of those dynamics on supply chains and logistics? I think one of the biggest ones certainly is having a robust ability to forecast accurately. Because once once you have a sense of this is what our demand actually looks like, you need to be able to then tune your entire operation to uh, be able to support that level of demand flexibly enough that when conditions change, whether that's a consumer sentiment or inflation hits or supply chain issue or whatever, uh, that you have the ability to, um, you know, to pivot when necessary. So the big implication for me is that the smartest companies are the ones that are figuring out how to build a flexible system as opposed to one with deep roots in a physical location in particular. Got it. As you think back over, you know, the last 10 plus years, Have companies gotten better at forecasting because there's new tools and technologies than there were 10 plus years ago? Or are they about the same? Or is it worse? How has it changed? I would say that it's on the margin better, but more difficult because of these these dynamics that we were talking about earlier. And at the end of the day, that's why it's so important to build a flexible network to be able to put you in a position to be able to move left or right or up or down whenever you need to. Yeah, interesting. So it's like an arms race between an increase in maybe the number and types of changes and dynamics and sources of uncertainty. But on the other hand, we've got better tools for forecasting. We've gotten to a slightly more effective state than 10 years ago, say. To the extent that you can manage in real time um, and have visibility to your inventory, certainly that gives you the ability to make the changes that are necessary when conditions change. Now, the tools that exist certainly allow you to be able to say, this is what's happening right now. And to the extent that I want to change in 10 minutes, if I press this button, so, so certainly, um, certainly better technology and, and tools that exist, 
uh, but the conditions and the timing and the pace of, of business is so much faster than it once was. What are the elements of the supply chain that have historically been barriers to flexibility? Yeah, I, I think it's, it starts more than likely with where you choose to plant the flag, if you will, at least in a physical setting. There are usual suspects around the, if you just take the U.S., if you want to the fulfillment or distribution network. You want to be in Indiana. You want to be in uh, Southern California, places like that. And now today, I think that's changed a bit in terms of looking at what I would consider to be sort of a, a network thought process. At the end of the day, Carl, I always start and end with the customer. You know, there are four questions that a customer asks when they decide that they want to buy something, go out to dinner, run their daily lives, and they. They ask, what do you have? How much does it cost? Where can I get it? And when? I think the best companies are the ones that um, look at those four questions and do the, the better job than anybody else of answering that request. Those are the kinds of things that, um, that I think when, you, when you're setting up your supply chain that have to be answered and you have to be in that mindset because that's ultimately who you're serving. Yes, it's an elegant way to sort of boil it down. And yeah. uh, I love that you're sort of like, let's come back to the customer and how the customer views the world and what what he or she wants. You've mentioned uh, a couple uh, different examples of solutions, um, supply chain or, or logistics related solutions that companies are deploying increasingly these days. Uh, you've mentioned visibility. You've talked about inventory modeling or optimization. You've talked about network design and thinking about scenario analysis, thinking maybe more dynamically about your network. Are those the types of solutions that rise to the top in terms of what you're seeing with the companies you work with deploying and, and evolving? Or are there others you'd add to that list? Yeah, I think... Um... I think they are getting much more focused now also on looking at long tail and working back up through the business to the merchants and a lot more coordination across the business that they're a part of. It's a much more integrated effort now. And included in that is the understanding of, are we really selling 10 things all equally? Or are we selling two that make up 80% of the sales and I'm seeing companies get much more focused and somewhat maniacal, honestly, on making sure that the assortments that are represented in their businesses are providing the right kind of uh, payback in terms of the investment that's required to do that. I think maybe one of the other things I mentioned also is just the partnerships that you see where spreading out of cost, or I see more of that happening in the space now where you may have a dedicated fulfillment network in e-commerce, but now you're using part of that space to bring in, say, a third party to make sure that you're essentially sweating the asset as much as you can when you make that investment. Yeah, it's an asset-intensive business to the degree you can share some of that fixed costs around the infrastructure. There's real value there. I do think it's important to underscore, at least for retailers that are true omni-channel players, you know, sometimes there's financial discussions, I'll say, around, um, you know, should a business that has both an e-commerce and a, a brick and mortar presence in their business, think about separating those two pieces. And if you go back to what the customer is asking for, they don't really care right. how, how you get the product to them or where where it's coming from. They just know that, you know, particularly in an e-commerce setting, 
when I press that button and, and I give you my money and you say you're going to give it to me in 24 hours or two days or two hours, or I, I expect that that happens. It's much more difficult to do that if you, you know, when you try to present a brand, but it's separated. So in, in two different silos. Yeah. What, if any, lessons have uh, retailers, brands, merchants learned from the pandemic, if any? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, this this question of forecasting, I think certainly is um, is probably uh, close to the top of the list, if not at the top of the list, about what it takes to um, you know to really run a business through a tumultuous time like we experienced. And the um, everybody's tuned up their forecasting capability and gotten a lot smarter. Some brands and some customers have also figured out, and it's been an awakening moment almost um, to say that wow, there's there's a whole another business out there that allows us to be able to still engage with customers, you know, particularly in an omni-channel setting when I, I know in one of the businesses I was a part of during that period of time, we had to close our stores for 10 weeks, but our customers were still saying, I need the product. How are you going to get it to me? And, right. you know, we, we accelerated a lot of the work um, that we were doing to leverage technology to be able to engage with customers outside of the store setting. And so I think everybody, at least the best businesses, use that period of time to almost kind of reinvent themselves, whatever that meant for for that for their particular businesses. And a lot of that reinvention had to do with supply chain, you know, and and whether that was, hey, I sourced from China, and now I'm trying to bring it near shore or onshore here in the U.S. to cut down on the time that it takes to get raw materials. All those kinds of things started to become regular conversations during that period of time, whereas maybe in the past, just because you had a certain way of doing things, you just, you almost on autopilot and it all worked and everything was fine. But then in 2020, when everything started shutting down, everybody had to say, well, what are we going to do to run our business? Because I want to be around when this thing is over. (laughs) That's right. And so many companies, and there have been great interviews that I've read and listened to from, from CEOs and other senior people who reflect back and, and and say something to the effect of, it, we learned that when necessary, we can move really quickly. Separate and apart from what the pivot was, just the ability to move quickly when needed. It's a reflection on just the, the human side of life, right? When your back is against the wall and your foot is in a trap, you either bite your leg off or you figure out how to get out of the trap. Again, I think the, the best companies um, you know, had leadership and people around them that embrace that craziness um, and, and the uncertainty and looked at it as an opportunity and said, well, what can we do with what we have to work with and rebuilt themselves and came out on the other side even better. The companies that were stuck and had their heads buried in the sand, different things happened for them. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the pandemic put a big spotlight on the need for flexibility. You know, work as hard as you can to develop the right plan A, but be very ready to react quickly if if plan A doesn't play out. The pandemic really prompted businesses to think much more creatively than they ever had to. In the business that I was running at the time in the optical space, we we weren't selling something that was a want. We were selling something that was a need. Um, You know, for those customers that typically would come to the store to get their eye exam and um, you know, buy their glasses, you know, they they still would call and say, I, I see that you're closed. I had an order 
right before you close your stores, how am I going to get my glasses? Because I have to go to, I still have to go to work, right? I remember those days sitting down with the team and saying, well, what do we want to do here? And we had, we'd already had a roadmap um, and a whiteboard in our, in our office saying we want to build this kind of capability and leverage the technology to be able to allow us to reach customers and outside of just coming to the store. And, um, you know, we, we had been working on it, but we proved to ourselves earlier in, I think it was 10 days it took us to actually go from, you know, sort of noodling around with the idea, which we had been doing for months, to actually saying, this is now a necessity. How quickly can we actually stand this up? And um, you know, we proved to ourselves we can actually do this. And then we leveraged that kind of spirit and thinking to a whole host of other things after that that allowed us to move much more quickly. And we, the way of working and the way that we got decisions made really change quite a bit. Right. So shifting gears here, we haven't yet talked about artificial intelligence. I'd really love to hear any of your views or thoughts on it. You know, not only is it sort of a headline thing in the consumer part of our world, but it seems to have legitimately gotten significantly more powerful. Are you seeing anything yet about the most valuable or highest potential applications of AI in terms of retail or supply chain related capabilities? Yeah, I mean, there, there are many. There are opportunities for businesses, again, to leverage these core capabilities that are already focused on, whether that's efficiency, visibility, being able to clone, if you will, um, like markets to be able to create. You know, if, if I know this is what makes this business successful in this region of the country? How do I build that into a model that helps to spit out, if you will, what other markets might be ones that can behave like this so that you improve the, the odds of being successful when you're planting the flag and building more locations, stores, or whatever it may be? Um, so there, there are lots of, um, lots of positive implications for that, certainly from a customer standpoint. Those are the kinds of things that I, um, that I think are all just going to continue to evolve and, and be made better. So, Michael, this has been really fun, really enlightening. Uh, I always really enjoy our opportunities to chat. So thank you again very much for joining us here today. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much, Carl. It's good to see you. Okay, wow. As expected, Michael really centered on the consumer. And I like, in particular, what jumped out to me was how he talked about how the consumer has the power in the relationship. Yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating. A little bit of a history lesson for me too. Exactly. You know, that really, this started at the manufacturer and then moved to the retailers and then ended with the consumers. Um, I think it's very interesting. Both the uh, you know the the car dealer example that Michael brought up about information parity and how how much better informed consumers are. And what that really translates to is a fickle consumer, and it makes changing uh, very easy in the mind of the consumer. And of course, that raises ever more challenges to be competitive and to be front of mind for the consumer. And uh, every every delivery promise matters, every supply chain promise matters. And so uh, just a very interesting perspective uh, about the empowered consumer. I'm glad you brought up promise there too, because that that is the key to the customer experience is meeting your promises to them. And I think that reshifts for 3PLs and warehouse operators and transportation providers what their KPIs are. It, it was in the past looking within the four walls at your efficiencies and productivities. 
But now things like cart abandonment and on-time delivery and fill rate jump to the front. So it's a completely different mindset from how you manage your operations in the past. That's right. And so the consumer has the power. That's the premise. That's the assertion. And consumers' needs and wants continue to evolve, right? You know, do I want things even faster, but maybe I don't want to pay for that? And what about my return option? So the consumers have the power, but I don't think they've settled on what they want. And let's be honest, there's not one consumer out there. There's lots of different types of consumers with different needs. So what are the implications for logistics and logistics models? Well, Carl, I think maybe you were hinting at it a little bit there, but I, I do think there has been, call it over the last six months to a year, when I've talked to big retailers, a little bit of shift in the mindset of everyone chasing faster and faster delivery because we want to do everything we can to please the consumer. Well, the other side of the coin is cost. And sometimes these things are at odds with each other. And I heard very explicitly uh, customers say, you know what, we're going to get it to a customer in two days. Beyond that, we may offer some third-party options, but it is no longer our priority to push everything up to same day or even next day necessarily. And so there is a balance that's being struck there in real time and uh, about balancing what is, you know, what does the consumer find acceptable versus what will force them into switching or making a different decision. So as you're talking to these big retailers, Jordan, are you starting to see alignment on kind of the winning model? in some consistency uh, that, that people are starting to kind of gravitate towards, you know, the best solution here? You know, I, I think the outcome alignment is there around, we need fast delivery, we need to guarantee product uh, to a customer's door and give them a reliable promise. But the execution of that uh, is being taken in really three different routes if you look at direct consumer e-commerce. Uh, one is leaning on a store network to uh, deliver because uh, customers say, hey, I already have these assets deployed and so I can leverage them. Uh, another is instead of the mega million square foot distribution centers, um, a proliferation of smaller direct-to-consumer e-commerce uh, warehouses and expanding that network and having segregated inventory, but being very agile in how you get to the consumer. And then finally, there is maybe the highest complexity, but uh, what I think Michael Bender uh, referenced was his preference, uh, ever so subtly, he didn't say it overtly, but that is uh, omni-channel and really tackling everything in the context of one DC. Um, and of course, this gets the complexity of inventory management, and there's no clear winner here. Uh, I think that the type of business, there's many things that dictate which route a particular shipper takes. I couldn't agree more. There's a clear alignment about some of the big terms like speed and omni-channel, but the how to get there is where there's a hundred different answers to it. And as you mentioned, ship from stores a big answer. Bopis is a big answer. And this is where I think supply chain leaders can have a bigger impact into the revenue operations of the organization, because suddenly your retail front is now a distribution and fulfillment center with all the challenges that come with that from inventory accuracy to replenishment. And from the consumer perspective, you have to make all that complexity disappear below the line and make that a simple omni-channel experience for them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, one of the themes that came up on, again, on an earlier episode was this simple framework of, you know, it's really about customers, which we've been talking about costs, you know, and to some degree, to an in increasing degree, carbon. So customers cost and carbon, 
And, you know, I was kind of a leading question, uh, Jordan. You know, it, it seems very clear that there is not one right model, um, in part because the world hasn't stopped changing and evolving. Again, consumers haven't sort of landed on, okay, here are my needs and I'll be good with these these same set of demands for the next 10 years. So that that's still changing. And different retailers and, and consumer products companies that are shipping direct to consumers, they have different assets in place, right? You know, you, you got to start with the infrastructure you have uh, and then figure out how to optimize that. And that has to be, and frankly, is the starting point for your plan and your strategy going forward, right? Yep. And, and this, you know, to Michael Bender's point about digitizing the supply chain and the visibility, uh, the more complex this gets, and really any of these routes that you take demands the highest degree of inventory accuracy, the highest degree of visibility, and really all of that is borne out in in uh, digitization. So, you know, that's a that's a theme that's covered many episodes and many of the conversations you've had, Carl. Right. So, Ben, uh, let's talk about the conversation you had as well. So kind of taking an example of, I don't know what the right word is, I wouldn't call it extreme, but it's a very unique consumer value proposition, a very unique solution that comes with a unique set of supply chain logistics challenges. Tell me what you take away from that conversation. Well, one of the interesting counterpoints to that conversation was that faster isn't always better when we go back to promise. So I spoke with Chris Halkiard, who's been in senior supply chain roles from Blue Apron, BarkBox, and Rent the Runway. When it comes to things like meal kits and expecting that you're going to get a meal at a particular time or day, and things like white glove delivery services, more people are getting appliances and furniture delivered, early is almost as bad as late. So accuracy and surgical precision are the approach of the differentiated 3PLs as opposed to those that used to be just throughput and speed factories. Right. And I think to what Jordan's talking about is there's no solve for that without digitization. How do you control early deliveries? How do you make sure that the customer can line up their delivery appointments? You need to be connected to that consumer, not just through that cart and the button click there, but up through their experience when that arrives and ensuring that that outcome is positive. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so let's take a step back here and just see where we are. So we have talked to some leaders in logistics and retail broadly, and and what have we been hearing? Number one, that the consumer should be at the center of our operation and the decisions we make. That's kind of motherhood and apple pie a little bit, right? Um, but you know, when you hear Jason, when you hear Michael talk about it, they can inject some real meaning into like, what does that mean practically? Okay, that's good. Two, okay, costs matter. Again, motherhood and apple pie. So what do I go do with that? What like practically speaking, what are my design principles of the solutions I want to put into place? You know, I'd like to look at this strictly through the lens of the 3PL supply chain leaders. Okay. Because... One, like there's been a huge amount of funding moving in the direction of fulfillment operators, VC and otherwise. And now there's a bunch of them for the shippers and CPGs and retailers to choose among. So what differentiates you in that space? I think what we've talked about here is not like, yes, customers carbon cost, but potentially in that order, like the customer is first on that list. So if they're able to position their business as a service, as a value add, as a loyalty and differentiator for their customer experience, as opposed to just being another cost on your bottom line. I think that's the 
type of companies that are going to be successful with the retailers are looking for answers in this space of the changing customer experience. Take a listen to what Chris said about that. We are all, and when I say we, I mean everybody involved in consumer selling. We're still suffering a bit from the hangover of COVID-19. Everything shifted. Everything got more expensive. Rent got more expensive. Uh, transportation got more expensive and less efficient. And some of the KPIs, uh, the key performance indexes that all of us used to look at to try to drive performance, a lot of those numbers have changed, especially on inventory ownership. How much should we own? What should the inventory turn be? You're not really convinced that the global supply chain is back, uh, back in stable now. It's, it's just you don't know how fast you're going to get product in. You don't know how much it's going to cost. So a lot of companies that are really focused today, they're going to spend a little bit less attention on what that looks like versus what does my customer want and how can I get this product there? Um, and that's going to manifest in several different ways. Companies are going to want to decentralize their supply chain. They're going to want to minimize risk. Uh, for all of your eggs are in one basket, in today's modern age, you're in a lot of trouble. Don't focus on cost, focus on differentiation and service. On those differentiators, Chris went on to say. Uh, E-commerce itself did you know, roughly a trillion dollars in 2022, and that's estimated to be you know, significantly higher in the years to come, and about 20% of the global volume uh, around the world. Uh, so nothing is growing quite as fast as that, and everybody is trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, Amazon is roughly 40% of that in the U.S., so there is a lot of share to be captured. Uh, and I think that companies that are focusing on that, really investing in marketing, learning who their cohorts and their customers are, and what they're going to do to try to keep those customers, that's going to keep them in the game and keep them profitable. What I found really interesting was a new take on what you need to own versus what you can go to third parties to solve for within your organization. Here's Chris again. Well, the first thing you really want to do is you want to gain some trusted suppliers, some trusted third-party suppliers. I've been with organizations that are, you know, we want to do 100% proprietary. And I've been one of those people. You know, the more proprietary you get, the more ownership you get, the more ownership you get, the more loyalty and just the better general performance. Uh, I think as an axiom, that makes sense. <laughs> but in the real world, in the spikes and the volatility of the supply chain that we can expect for years to come, uh, you've got to diversify that. You've got to get additional warehouse space. Any solid supply chain is going to have multiple options because if your supply chain is set up where you're restricting or constricting growth, you're not doing your job. Yeah, I love that Chris ended here on another differentiating factor, multiple options in your supply chain or thinking of it as supply chains. Resilience has been a strong emphasis in the post-COVID world, and Chris really sums up with that in talking about diversity of supplier base. Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll tack on one additional point here. The flexibility of the supply chain org and the willingness to take risk is really imperative because there is nothing that replaces firsthand empirical knowledge of how a solution does or does not work inside your organization. And the only way to do that is to be willing, Carl, you brought this up a couple of times, to test and learn, to have that firsthand uh, exposure. And I think we all know it. Everyone wants to be progressive and forward thinking in the risks they take in their supply chain org and doing what is, you know, using the best, newest technologies. 
but the willingness and the execution of that, I find falls short in most cases. Yeah, you know, and you said as much, you know, that's one of my hot buttons, but it's so true. I mean, let's let's just sort of think back on a couple of examples of this. Um, two come to mind, you know, Michael was with us. He was at Walmart for a number of years. He was there uh, when Walmart made the decision, the bet to buy jet.com. And that was as much about buying capability and expertise to sort of increase the learning speed of the world's largest retailer uh, to figure out what is this e-commerce thing really all about. It's not that they hadn't done anything. They'd already been investing in, in, and had developed capabilities, but this was an investment to accelerate that learning cycle and to test and try other things. And of course, you know, I, I wasn't there. Um, I don't know uh, certainly what happened, but there was a lot of learning. You know, there were, there were people and capabilities um, that they built on top of. There were other things that they tried and didn't like, and they've evolved tremendously since then. So, so there's one example of test and learn with a pretty big, you know, test. It was more than a test. I don't want to minimize it, right? That's one example. Another one that comes to mind is, you know, another big retailer, there was a lot of press about um, Target. So in COVID, um, this huge urgent push to, at a much more rapid pace, develop ship from store capability. You know, there are great stories written on this about how quickly they were able to move. And a lot of that was based on earlier tests they had done and some smaller things they had tried. So they weren't starting from a, a blank sheet of paper. And I think Target is well known for this, um, being kind of one of the best at trying different things uh, at scale and keeping the things they like and scaling them out and then kind of ditching the ones that, that didn't work. So interesting you bring up Jet. And like they launched as a kind of the anti-Amazon, right? We're talking about, hey, free shipping, it doesn't actually exist. It's subsidized through other means. And Jet incentivized consumers to bundle orders and do things in a way that made supply chains efficient. And maybe wasn't the right time or place, but that was a pretty clear customer demand indicator when Jet didn't succeed. A customer said, we won't alter our behavior to make your supply chain efficient. You alter your supply chain to make our behavior such a good justifiable. Point. Such a good point. So there, there was an experiment in the form of a company. Um, and look, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on it, but I think there were some elements that worked and others that just didn't um, for, for the reason you point out. Uh, lots of goodness, lots of richness in this conversation. Jordan, anything to inject here as we start to wrap up? You know, I think themes are emerging as we continue these conversations around digitization, visibility, uh, the ability to test and learn new solutions. I mean, there, there are a handful of things that just keep coming up. And of course, customer centricity being uh, front and center across the board. So looking forward to the continued conversations we're going to have. Ben, Jordan, thank you so much. I look forward to continuing this conversation with our next episode. It's uh, great as always. We'll talk again soon. Look forward to next time. See you there. You've been listening to the Logistics Leadership Podcast presented by Flex. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast or join the Logistics Leadership Community, check out this episode's show notes and visit flex.com slash logistics leadership podcast. Keep the conversation going. Email us at leadershippodcast at flex.com. The Logistics Leadership Podcast features original music by Diaphonic. The show's producers are Robert Haskett and Adam Kappel. Here's a quick pro tip. Instead of chasing down the next episode, why not just follow the show and have it appear in your feed automatically? Thanks for joining us.